covenant-keeping God. And we're going through about six different covenants. And, and this morning, we're going to talk about the covenant of David. So if you're a first-time guest and you don't know what's happening right now, think of this as like a short Sunday school lesson. Last about 20 minutes, you're going to hear uh, a message later from, from our pastor. But this is just a short Bible study. We try to go deeper into the Word of God, maybe deeper than you may have heard or, or have been before. Um, so today we're talking about the covenant that God made with David. Second Samuel chapter 7 is where we're going to take our text from, and we're going to begin reading at verse number 11. From Second Samuel chapter 7 and verse number 11 says, And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused thee to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord tells thee that he will make thee a house. And when thy days be fulfilled, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, which shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he commit iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, and with the stripes of the children of men. But my mercy shall not depart away from him, as I took it from Saul whom I put away before you. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before you. Thy throne shall be established forever. This was a huge promise to King David. For God to take this, this meager shepherd boy, who even his own father didn't even think to bring him in front of the prophet when the man of God showed up and said, it's one of your, one of your sons. And he, he went through all of them and said, well, there's got to be one more because none of these are it. Oh, we got this this little you know kid. He's out back. He's not very old. He's just a stupid little kid. He doesn't know much, and uh, you know he hadn't even shaved yet. You know the Bible says he was a beautiful countenance, and that means he he still had his kid looks. Whenever whenever God chose him, so you know God can choose children, and and God can use kids. Amen. So we don't know exactly how old David was, but he was probably pretty young. So this was a monumental moment for David, but this was a covenant that God made with David specifically, and it had to do with the coming Messiah. So King David had it in his heart to build a house for God. So, you know, after God had given David rest from all his enemies for a, uh, for a season, he's sitting in his house one day, and he's kind of lounging, and he's, he thinks to himself, here I am dwelling in this house of cedar, but, but God rests in a tent. So at that time, the Ark of the Covenant was still in the tabernacle that Moses built. And that tabernacle was very old. So can you imagine what condition and shape it, it must have been in for it to have endured, for, for it to have endured that long? So, so God never told David to build me a house, but it was just in David's heart to do this. So look at 2 Samuel chapter 7. It came to pass when the king sat in his house, and the Lord had given him rest, Round about from all his enemies. The king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within curtains. So he's asking the prophet Nathan, Is it okay if I build God a house? Is this God's will? Contrast that with the the preceding king who was very presumptuous and, and took things upon his own and didn't inquire the prophet of God at all. That was King Saul. And God rejected him. So David's going to Nathan, and he's saying, is this God's will? Verse 3, Nathan said to the king, go, do all that is in thine heart, for the Lord is with thee. So David said he wanted to build God a house, and in return, God said, you want, me, you want to build me a house? But in return, I'm going to build you a house. David's house was, of course, not a physical house. 
although he did have a physical house, but the house God is talking about in this passage was not a physical house. The house God built for David was a spiritual house. So God said that he would sit on the throne of David. Look at Psalms 132 and verse 11. The Lord has sworn in truth unto David. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of thy body will I set upon thy throne. So there was a promise of a king that would come and establish a kingdom that would last forever. So now there's an element to this prophecy and this covenant that applies to David's immediate son, which was Solomon. So because there's a promise that Solomon would build a house for my name. Now remember that David wanted to build this tabernacle, but God said, you're, you're a man that's got bloody hands. You've been a man of war. You've got blood on your hands. So you're not allowed to do this. But I'm going to give you the plans, and you're going to make all the preparations, and your son Solomon will build that house for my name. And whenever that house and that tabernacle was completed, you know, they sacrificed uh, sacrifices and oxen, <clears throat> and the presence of God came down so strong the priest couldn't minister. And Solomon prayed, Lord, we want this to be a house that your name dwells in. So, so because there was a promise that Solomon would build a house for my name, and not only that, but and that God's mercies would not fully depart from him, that he would be chastened but not cast off forever. Okay, remember that if you've ever endured the chastening of God, Get on your knees and thank your lucky stars that God had mercy on you. Because he could have just simply left you alone and let you go your own way. And, and when, if he had done that, then you would surely be in hell for all eternity. But thank God that he doesn't do that. But that portion of the covenant is referenced in Acts 13.34 about, again, the sure mercies of David. Look at, look at Acts 13.34. And as concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption. He said on this wise, I will give you the sure mercies of David. It amazes me how whenever you read about the depth of apostasy that Israel sank to, it was very deep. I mean, at one point, they were committing fornication in the most holy place. Horrible, wicked, wicked, abominable things. They were worshiping idols. And this is not, you know, Assyria or Babylon that simply doesn't know better. I mean, this was the nation that had seen the fire of God on top of Mount Sinai. The nation that had the tablets written with the finger of God. The nation that heard the audible voice of God and had seen the Red Sea part. And so they were held much more accountable than some heathen nation who simply just didn't know any better. But yet throughout, throughout their history, God had told David, God gave David a word. And the word was this, I am going to give you and your household mercy. And that is, you know, remember whenever David said, surely goodness and mercy to follow me all the days of my life. I will dwell in the household of ever. The goodness of God leads us back to repentance. Romans 2 and 4 says the goodness of God. If you ever repented, it's only because God pricked your heart. And, and, and allowed you to feel not condemnation for your sin, but conviction that drew you to the cross. And allowed you to lift your hands and say, Lord, I'm sorry, forgive me for what I've done. So, so this is what God is doing throughout Israel's history. Is, is he's, he's, he's giving them mercy over and over and over and over and over and over again. And had it not been for this covenant that God made with David, Israel would have been cast off forever. But throughout the prophets, you'll see... Over and over where he says, but for my servant David's sake. 
In other words, it's because of that covenant that I made. Amen. And so Paul went on to speak about how this portion of the covenant was also fulfilled through Christ. Look at Acts 13 and verse 35. Wherefore he says in another Psalms, Thou shalt not suffer thy holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served in his own generation, by the will of God, fell on his sleep and was laid into his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised saw no corruption. That's Jesus, of course. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. So first he says... God's going to give you the sure mercies of David. And then he immediately went into how Jesus died on the cross and was risen again from the dead. And he said, it is through that man that I am preaching to you the promises that God gave to David. And that is not just a temporary forgiveness of sins that was fulfilled under the law, but a permanent remitting and washing away of sins. A justification as if it had never even happened. It's like, you know, it's like you're going out and committing a crime. And suddenly, if you could roll back time, and you haven't committed that crime at all. It's not there. It never existed. That's how, that's the meaning of justification. So that's what he's talking about. So the covenant of David pointed to how Messiah would come and give, the sure, give those sure mercies. And he didn't just give them to the Jews, but he also gave them to the Gentiles. So that covenant, unlike the covenant of Moses that we talked about last week, does not have an expiration date, at least not yet. Second Samuel 7 and 16 says, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So the mercies of David were extended even to the Gentiles through the Messiah. The rule over the world originally given to Adam would be realized through a Davidic king. Okay? So Adam lost dominion. Now we're in Genesis chapter 3, right? You know that story. Adam lost the dominion that God had given him over the earth. But God promised it again through the seed of a king that would ascend from David's loins. It was a promise of renewed dominion that had been lost through the seed of a man in the same flesh as Adam had. So that begs the question, how could this be possible? If man had lost that dominion, and if man had allowed sin to enter into the world, and if sin is passed down through the seed of the man, as the Bible says it is, so no matter how good you are, no matter how good you are, you have original sin. You are a sinner by nature. You are born that way. You cannot be unborn a sinner, but by a supernatural birth. Nicodemus was confused. How could I go back in my mother's womb and be born all over again? Jesus said, you got to be born all over again. That's the only way to get rid of sin. you got to go back and you've got to have a new birth. And Jesus made that new birth possible. But it does beg the question, how could this be possible if original sin is passed down through the seed of the man? Because it would take one that didn't have that original sin to take away that sin. That exact question is asked in Revelation 5, in verse 2, where he says, And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man, everybody say, no man. No man in heaven, nor in earth, nor under the earth was able to open the book now that you look thereon. When they looked for somebody that was worthy to redeem the earth back to God, they looked for a man. Not for an angel and not for a God. But a man. It had to be a man. And here's a, here's a secret. Satan hates the thought of man's dominion. 
He hates it. What if your father took dominion away from you, the elder sibling, and gave it, or let's say that we're kids, you know, like when my kids were little, to a certain point now, if I take a toy away from my oldest and give it to my youngest, and it's my oldest, what, the, young, the oldest is kind of upset about that. Those that have kids are going to know that that's true. So this is kind of what happened. You know, the angels are called sons of God in more than one place in Scripture. So in, in a general sense, angels are, are sort of sons of God. So God took that dominion that Satan might have had, and he gave it to man, he gave it to Adam. He said, you are going to have dominion now. And so Satan stole it back. He was a murderer from the beginning. So Satan hates the idea of man ruling over the earth. But from the beginning, God promised it would be a man that would bruise the head of the serpent. Anytime Satan or his demons ever dealt with Jesus, they never, not a single time, ever called him the son of man. Not a single time in the Gospels. The only time, the only thing or title they ever gave him was the Holy One of God or the Son of God, but never Son of Man. In contrast, Jesus, on the other hand, called himself Son of Man more than any other title he ever possessed. 82 times. And he called himself Son of God only five times. And when you look at the totality of all the times that he was called Son of God in the, in the Gospels, it's only 25 times that he was ever referred to as Son of God. Whereas Jesus, by himself, not counting everybody else that might have called him that, but everybody, but he called himself Son of Man, 82 times. And here we go back to the spirit of the Antichrist that refuses to acknowledge that Jesus Christ ever came in the flesh. First John 4 and 2, which says this, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is, is, is of God. Every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit whereof ye have heard that it should come, and now already it is in the world. Antichrist. An antichrist spirit will not confess this fact because mankind was given dominion and said to be the element that God would use to crush the devil's head. The very power of death that Satan rightfully laid claim to was for the sole purpose of killing mankind. Jesus said it like this, he was a murderer from the beginning. And abode not in the truth. So Satan had the keys. So when Jesus came to earth, Satan's like, I'm not calling you son of man. And to this day, an antichrist spirit refuses to acknowledge that Jesus ever came in the flesh. In the days of Jesus, rather, in the days of the apostles, you know, they believed in, in a doctrine called Gnosticism, which was like, you know, there was a doctrine that, that, that basically said, you know, that Jesus, he didn't really come in a physical body. It was like a phantom, like a spirit. There was an appearance, but he, wasn't, he didn't have flesh and blood like we have. In the most recent times, it was called the divine flesh doctrine, where there was a certain element, even, even within Pentecostalism, that said Jesus did not have human flesh. He had divine flesh. That was from God, but he was not a member of the human race. Well, if he was not a member of the human race, then he could not have been our redeemer. He came in human flesh. He came to get back the dominion that Adam lost in the beginning. And he came to get back those keys. Who had the keys after Adam lost them? Rather, let me ask this another way. Who did God originally give the keys to? Adam. Adam had dominion. You can read Genesis 1. Take dominion over the fish of the sea, fowl of the air, over everything that moves on the earth. There was a, a dominion in the physical realm. And, and, and so Adam lost that dominion. He gave it 
to, to Satan. And so Jesus took those keys back and gave them to the church. And now, not only do we have physical dominion, but there is a spiritual dominion now because now we're at war with that same spirit that's trying to get that dominion back from the church. He's still trying to take the keys back. Revelation 1 and 18 says, I am he that lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of hell and death. Jesus said he has the keys now. Look at Isaiah 22 and verse 22. And the key of the house of David will I lay upon his shoulder. So he shall open and none shall shut, and he shall shut and none shall open. Again, going back to this covenant of David, he talks about there is a key of the house of David. And I am going to lay it upon the shoulder of Eliakim. Now a key would be laid upon his shoulder. Of course, in the immediate verse, it's talking of Eliakim, but ultimately it's a prophecy about Christ that was yet to come. What was laid upon Messiah's shoulder according to Isaiah 22 and 22? The key of the house of David. Now cross-reference that with Isaiah 9 and 6, which says this. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Government would be laid upon his shoulder. Isaiah called it the key of the house of David in chapter 22. But in chapter 9, he called it government or rulership, dominion. Authority would be laid upon his shoulder. That's the same thing as the key of the house of David. Because Messiah came and restored authority and now sits currently upon the throne of David as king and ruler over the enemy. That's death, hell, and the grave. There's some people that say, well, he's going to reign. Well, that's true. There probably will be a physical reign. At least I believe in one. But right now, he's still king. And he still has the keys. You know, Jesus said, all power is given unto me. In heaven and in earth. Jesus is king. He's, he's king's reign. Okay, he won't just be king at a future date, but he is currently sitting on the throne right now, reigning as supreme. Look at Psalms 110 and verse 1, where it says, The Lord said unto my Lord, sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. So it says here that he would reign and sit upon the throne of David until all his enemies were under his feet. The Messiah reigns as king on the throne of David until all the enemies are under his feet. That's how we know that he's reigning right now. Because it says, until all the enemies are under his feet. To state the obvious, this means he's currently reigning because clearly death has not yet been fully eradicated. We just had a funeral yesterday. He will die. I hate to bathe the bear of bad news, but unless Jesus comes, and he will one day... But unless Jesus comes, your physical body will, will die. Now, look at Hebrews 2 and verse 8, where it says this, Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he hath put all things in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not see yet all things put under him. So what does this verse mean? First, he says, all things are put under him. Then he says, all things are not yet subject to him. So the idea is that, had man continued in his innocence, as God's design and plan was, dominion would have never have been lost. But it took a man from Adam's seed to regain back what Adam had lost. So God put on our flesh and conquered our enemies. And all things are under Christ's feet. But we, in our physical bodies, we still see death. 
We still suffer disease. Many of you have been sick in the past month. It's been going around. We still feel the effects and the struggle of original sin every day. And that's why Paul said we've got to die out to our flesh. It's got to be continual death. So, so everything is under Christ's feet, but it's not yet under our feet. So the plan is for God once again to put everything under the feet of man and the meek will inherit the earth. Amen. Meek, we will inherit this earth one day. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, and the, and the earth will be that which dwells righteousness. So right now, we still feel death. We still feel disease. We still, we still feel the effects of Adam's sin, but we've got a spirit within us that the Apostle John says, greater is he that is in us than he that is in this world. So we can have victory in this life right now. But there is going to come a time where we are going to have the ultimate victory, where it's not going to be a struggle anymore. Amen. There will be no unrighteousness in the world. There will be no temptations. There will be no disease, no death. The lion shall lay down by the lamb. The child shall play in the hole of the asp. You know, it will once again be as it was in the beginning. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 51 says this as I close. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep. But we shall be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. And it's almost like a chant or a taunt where he says, Oh, death, where is thy sting? Oh, grave, where is thy victory now? One of these days, the eastern sky is going to split wide open and he's going to come back on a white horse and the dead are going to get up out of those graves and we shall be given a new body in that day, a brand new body, and we're going to see our loved ones again. We're going to see Jesus face to face. We're going to walk on streets of gold. It's going to be amazing. And in that day, all things will be as they were from the beginning, but better. It's going to be better than it was in the beginning because God always ends better than he starts. Praise God. Let's stand to our feet today. I thank God for that right now. Amen. Lift your hands, Lord. Amen, to the Lord. And let's just enter into a time of worship. Thank you.